Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. And I'm Dylan. Our book this week is Muhammad, written by Maxime Rodinson, and translated from French by Anne Carter. Rodinson, both a maverick Marxist and a distinguished professor at the Sorbonne, first published his biography of Muhammad in 1960. The book, a classic in the field, has been widely read ever since. Rodinson, though deeply versed in scholarly studies of the Prophet, does not seek to add to it here, but to introduce Muhammad, first of all, as a man of flesh and blood who led a life of extraordinary drama and shaped history as few others have. Equally, he seeks to lay out an understanding of Muhammad's legacy and Islam as what he called an ideological movement, similar to the universalist religions of Christianity and Buddhism, as well as the secular movement of Marxism both possessing a singular commitment to the deeply ingrained idea that Islam offers not only a path to salvation, but for many, above all, the ideal of a just society to be realized on earth. And we are joined by writer, filmmaker, and activist Tariq Ali. His book, The Lenin Scenario, comes out in January of next year. But for now, you can get started on Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm wondering how you first came to read this book. I became aware of your connection to it through the piece you wrote for the London Review of Books a couple years ago. Um, But what made you want to write about it? You know, Maxime Rodinson is the only author I've read on matters Islamic and the history of that part of the world. Uh, He's been writing since, for a very long time, uh, wrote about the Suez War in 1956, the Sixth Day of War in 1967. And so his writings were available and published. I came to his biography of the Prophet Muhammad a bit later, And the reasons for that are very simple. I was never a believer. You know, I've always been an atheist. And so I wasn't interested as such in in reading it. Also, I was aware, having grown up in a country that is suffused with Islam, i.e. Pakistan, uh, you know, I knew a fair bit of the story. And my friends and I at university used to say, well, you know, we don't know if any of this is true. And then uh, um, Rodinson came along, a sort of voice of authority with his other writings. And that's when I think I read Muhammad when it was first published. But read might be an exaggeration. I think I flicked through it. Till 9-11, when I just sat down and read it very carefully, because one had to debate the subject in different parts of the world. I see. Very interesting. Well, Rodinson, just to give listeners a little background on who he was and how he's coming to this material, he was born in France, the child of Jewish immigrants who had fled Russia. As a young man, he took interest in the Middle East. He studied Arabic, Turkish, and Amharic. He went on to have a successful academic career. Uh, He worked abroad in Syria and Lebanon during the Second World War, thus escaping the persecution of Jews in Nazi-occupied France. But in 1944, he learned that both of his parents had died in Auschwitz. Uh, Rodinson was a member of the Communist Party for about 20 years before resigning, but he remained a Marxist. And in this book, he does make some connections between Islam and secular movements, like Marxism. 
What effect do you think his own ideology had on the biography that he created? I think it's a materialist biography. Uh, it's not a religious biography um, by any means. And obviously he used his way of doing history, his way of looking at history, uh, and contextualized both the birth of Islam and the birth of the Prophet with the materials uh, that were that were available. I mean, he was lucky, A, to survive. And, you know, I think it's worth stressing that lots of the French Jews who were sent to the camps initially were sent by the French on their own initiative. They started doing it even before the Third Reich and the Nazis instructed them to, which came much, much later. But to curry favor, and anti-Semitism as an intellectual current was rife in France, much stronger than ever in Germany. But anyway, he was lucky he, he, his life was saved because he was abroad. And he just spent his time in the Middle East reading, um, making notes, uh, searching for material, researching, and developed a fairly amazing archive, which I've never seen, but I'm told that it, it was pretty amazing. So when he came back, he was well prepared, and he knew the languages, which is a big advantage for a Westerner. Mm -hmm. And he um, started challenging the established verities of the Western world on analyzing Islam. He wasn't alone. There were a few others who did it. But uh, Rodinson did it with real panache, and he wrote very well. So his mm -hmm. books were, they were scholarly books, but very well written, so a layperson could just pick them up and read them. And um, I think that's what made him extremely attractive. But then you, know, you have to look, ask another question. Would he have done this had he not gone to the Middle East? I'm, I'm stayed alive somehow or the other, but not gone to the Middle East. Who knows? I mean, this is where, you know, your biography is determined by your location, especially at uh, critical times in history. So, um, and he was very, you know, open-minded. There was very little uh, bullshit about him. He just wrote things and uh, said things as they were, which didn't make him popular with various establishments and political organizations. And uh, to the um, Jews, he would say, you've now got a country in another part of the world, and behave yourselves. He would say it like that. He said, why do you want to be agents of the United States or the imperial powers? You should make friends with the Arab leaderships, talk yeah. to them and become part of the Arab world in a conciliatory way. Uh, because you're in the wrong. It's not your fault, but you're in the wrong uh, by driving people out. He was one of the first, one of the few historians to push the idea that Israel wasn't somehow innocent. 
that they had expelled Palestinians. And uh, Maxim was, I think, probably the first to write about the Palestinians as such. There was a people here. They lived here. They were driven out. This is a huge crisis. Whereas most people didn't talk about it like that on both sides, because the Palestinians hadn't developed a political identity. Uh, they were under the rule of Arab kings and rulers. And the uh, Zionists were playing it relatively quiet till 1949 when they went went on the warpath and broke the agreements with the United Nations, which had divided the area up, I wouldn't say equitably, but fairly equitably. So Israel still had more land there, but the Palestinians had quite a lot too. It's full, you know, given what's going on in the Middle East uh, as we speak, we just see that that problem was never solved. And those who tried to, seriously tried to bring it about, failed. I mean, the Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was very popular throughout the Middle East, wanted to push through a settlement with the Israelis. So they lived in peace and he approached Moshe Sharat and other Zionist leaders who were in favor. But Ben-Gurion and uh, Golda Meir, uh, were totally against it. They had a choice. And they had these choices long before the Second World War when they started settling there. There was a group of cultural settlers who said, we just want to live here. We don't want to get into the business of creating our own states and armies. We want to live with the Arabs in peace, so just let's do that. But there was strong pressure from Britain, uh, which... Uh, the Balfour Declaration allowed them to do this, which said, no, you have to play a proper role, etc., pushing them in the direction of what they later became. So th- these are histories which are now virtually ignored in Israel because it's embarrassing given the ideology they've developed. But they, you know, they forget and the world forgot that the Palestinians existed. It was a normal country. It was mm-hmm. referred to in the annals of uh, Roman historians long before the birth of Christianity, that you go to the Arab world and there are these states in the South Arabia, then you move this direction, you find Palestine. It's, you know, so it's not even a, a, a big debate. And this was what... Rodinson researched and wrote about it at length because he knew he had limited material. But he knew the only way to bring that limited material to life was to contextualize. And so he wrote in great detail and with great accuracy because there were documents uh, and uh, treatises from that uh, ancient period on what these countries were, what was happening to Byzantium, what was happening to the, when it became the second Rome, when it became Constantinople, and on the other side, what was happening to the uh, Persian Empire. Did not the world realize that it had gone into a down on, it was on a downward spiral, what is later Persia. And it was the 
growing collapse of these two empires, which opened up the space for a new religion and not just a religion, but a religion combined with a political movement to mm. emerge. Mm. Uh, so the Rodanson describes in another book, Islam and Capitalism, on how the trading communities of uh, that region played a huge part in promoting it. They needed something else. Byzantium, the second Rome, i.e. Constantinople and Byzantium before it, had their own religion, Christianity. The Persians, the Persian Empire had its own religion, you know, Zoroastrianism, and they wanted and they needed a third, a new dynamic religion, which helped them to promote their identity as something new when they went to trade all over the world. No, we are not, you know, Christians, we are not Jews, we are not, we are a new religion called Islam. Yeah. And Islam traveled in two ways all over the world. I mean, if you think about it, it's quite astonishing that within 200 years of the Prophet Muhammad's uh, death, Islam had reached China and the Atlantic seas. Yeah. And, you know, I have, there's no other example of such an incredible rise. And uh, Robinson, uh, mm -hmm. you know, has the merit of explaining it. And people who don't know Islam at all or see it only in a very partial way. I've always advised for a very long time now to read Robinson's books. He hasn't got everything, but he's got hell of a lot in there. He, like you said, he writes about this in such a way that is accessible and entertaining, which I found a little surprising how it, it was able to capture that. Um, and you're right. Like it, th I think part of the reason why it's so entertaining is we see this rise come so fast that like every new chapter in Rodin's son's book, it's like in within 20 years, they go from a few merchants that like are starting to build this ideology to literally owning an entire part of the Gulf. But I, I thought it was interesting that the book is structured in a way that it started off that it gave all this context that you've been mentioning for the first 50, 60 pages before it even gets to Muhammad, who is the subject of this biography. Why, why do you think Robinson chose to structure the narrative in that way? Well, A, he had no alternative. Uh, you know, there's yeah. not a massive amount of material around. Mm. and uh, But there is a lot of history uh, available of the collapsing empires on either side of the peninsula. And so he he wanted to explain to readers, this is how and why it happened, that there was no big rival left, there was a void. And yeah. these tribes, uh, which were trading tribes for the most, Quraysh, the tribe to which Muhammad belonged, the largest of them, and very involved in trade, both in the region and outside it. And uh, they just could not carry on. They needed to have their own particular narrative. Yeah. And this narrative 
became Islam. So in Christian traders, when they had their narrative, you know, whichever mm-hmm. faction of Christianity you choose, they had a narrative. So Islam gained a narrative. And there's sort of small details which are interesting, that Christianity in its early days had a lot of problems dealing with the pagans, as they mm-hmm. called them, you know. They felt that a strict monotheism wasn't enough. They needed a bit more than that. And given the number of women uh, involved in the pagan traditions as goddesses, as playing a, you know, quite an important role in everyday life, the Christians then had to invent and make part of their tradition the Virgin Mary which then Mm -hmm. posed a whole number of questions about sexuality and made it awkward to explain, you know, virgin birth and all that. I mean, they made it more complicated, not to mention the Holy Spirit, but that's because they were the first big break uh, from a form of uh, monotheism that hadn't succeeded as well as it thought it should, i.e. Judaism. So the Christianity is a break from Judaism. Could have left, made, had a clean sheet and done what they wanted, but they had to because under pagan pressure, say, well, we have our women goddesses too. Islam was faced with similar pressures. And in the early days of Islam, the Quran's so-called satanic verses are very interesting because the tribes that were worshipped, the tribes that worshipped female goddesses included the prophet's own tribe. Uh, Mm. And so the initial reading of the Quran suggested that while Allah, who was the divine, you know, the big God, and existed in pagan times as well, by the way, Allah was just their way of describing the sort of most powerful God in the skies. So that was taken over. And, you know, you can see a parallel to that, that the Christian God was called Deus, which is a variation of Zeus, the pagan God who presided over all the Roman gods, etc. <laughs> so uh, Islam went for their God who already existed, Allah. And uh, in the first discussion or, you know, revelations uh, in the Quran, the women goddesses are praised a great mm-hmm. deal. You know, Allah and Al-Manaf, and they are also part of us. Later, when the tribes had been sort of more or less won over completely and he didn't need to use these goddesses anymore, he had another revelation where God told him that these verses were given you, I can't remember the exact words now, were put into your head by Satan, uh, you know, mm. while you were a bit dozy, uh, <laughs> and removed them. So they were removed, and that's when Islam became the religion of pure monotheism. One yeah. God nothing else, uh, which enabled them actually to unite the tribes politically and ideologically uh, and go on huge trading exercises. I mean, China and uh, South India felt their, you know, economic presence, which is how they 
settled down there and uh, built Islam in China and in uh, India. Whereas on the Western side, it was also a case of collapsing uh, regions where Spain and Portugal were in a very bad condition. The Visigoth rule in Spain was uh, crumbling, uh, and the, uh, the the Catholics and Jews in Spain were suffering from it when this tiny army arrives from Damascus, I think, uh, with Berber recruits from the Maghreb. And they were, the figures vary, but people say there were no more than 600 to 1,000 people. And yeah. General Tariq, Ibn Zayad and his colleagues took Spain. And one reason they could take Spain was because people were extremely fed up with the existing situation. So if you contextualize the rise of Arab Islam in Spain, you see what was happening. And I mean, they were welcomed by Catholics and by uh, Jews when they first arrived, in some cases, saying, thank God someone's come to kick out the Visigoths. So that's how Islam developed so rapidly. I mean, it was partially, yeah. partially luck mm -hmm. and partially, you know, extremely uh, intelligent and uh, sharp operators at the top. Yeah. I, I like when you brought up the idea about the confusing sexuality in Christianity because, and I like how Roddenson um, talks about how in Christianity they don't like to discuss the birth of, or the conception of Jesus, but in, he's like, in Muhammad's case, they're like, oh, Muhammad's father was walking down the street, light in his eyes, you know, <laughs> brushing away women as he went to Muhammad's mother's, like, house and stuff. I, I, I liked his... Uh, his specifics in that. Well, on that, in tradition, all of the other traditions have it that the particular group, the peninsular, the peninsular Arabs that produced Islam, were known, you know, for one thing as being the masters and experts of it, and that was sexuality. That they really you know, men and women, by the way. It was not just women were oppressed. They were part of the whole... It was a bit like the uh, 60s in the 6th century. <laughs> sexuality was um, just part and parcel of the system. Of course, even in pagan times, men had more rights. One can't pretend there was any equality. But there were no big, uh, you know, sort of moral laws. If you wanted to go and sleep with each other, you did it. And therefore, in the uh, in the Quran itself, to the Quran was added a lot of stuff as called the Hadith. And the Hadith was a form of rumor-mongering. But rumor-mongering... Mm -hmm let's call it instrumentalized rumor-mongering. So you needed to make sure that A and B were accepted and you'd find a hadith supposedly from the, the Prophet Muhammad. Most of these, in my opinion, and the opinion of most people, uh, including within the Islamic world, were made up when necessary to actually enhance Islam and say it is a complete code of life. It has answers 
on everything. I mean, you know, talking about sexuality, there's a hadith in the name of the Prophet uh, in which the Prophet says to believers, oh, believers, do you, you know, do understand that women also require their pleasure and don't mount them like camels. And, uh, you know, it's, an, it's a hadith which actually argues for uh, pre-penetrative uh, sexual pleasure. Uh, you know, obviously put in a different way, but saying, you know, pleasure yourselves before you actually uh, start um, on the business. And uh, and this reflects the the uh, this attitude which went on, you know. I mean, right through early Islam, Middle Islam. It's now Islam is at its most, uh, you know, reflecting something that is not Islam or not the situation in which Islam was committed. I mean, there were rituals, there were rules, obviously but not in the way the Wahhabi Islam and the Saudis presented today, which is a very dominant section of Islam. The Shia are still a bit like the old times, but not the orthodox uh, Sunni. And uh, that's really bad because it, it puts everything under the ground. It's like, you know, you ban uh, people from smoking and they'll smoke in secret. You ban alcohol you see what happened in the United States. No one, no one yeah. cares. It carries on. So you can't restrict religion or ban homosexuality because it carries on. I mean, and you know, people do it in secret, as the West knows, which had homosexuality outlawed for you know a long, long period. I mean, you know, the the famous phrase used to be, "What is an Arab good at?" and it used to be shooting the mark and fornication you know hitting arrows and hunting and fornicating so you know and and what i was going to say on that is that all this tradition is reflected in the thousand and one nights the arabian nights i mean these are quite astonishing stories and people read them. You know, I mean, they do read them, but they don't look at them and saying, what are they reflecting? They're one of the yeah. great poets, actually existing poets, whose name I temporarily forget, uh, who appears in and out of the Arab Arabian Nights is gay. Well-known gay poet and known as such by the caliph ruling Baghdad, but ignored you know, yeah. they didn't assume some of their own laws that seriously because it was so common and widespread. Well, speaking a little bit more about this difference between Islam and Christianity uh, and certain stereotypes that people have of Islam in the West, you've said that this biography is, is an antidote to far-right sentiment in France. Why is that? And what do you think that it can be to us in other parts of the world? I think because the far-right as in most of their ideas, uh, is extremely simplistic. Uh, You know, they speak in a language designed for people with very little knowledge of their own. 
and so they can push through. It's exactly the same as the stuff that was being written about the Jews in the 20s before that, for a long time, but which became very strong in the interwar years in Europe, in Germany, in France, and in other parts of Europe uh, as well. Uh, I mean, anti-Semitism was rife in the United States and, and Britain. This is what people try and forget, you know, as if somehow uh, this is an Arab thing, the not to like Jews. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. So um, Rodinson, of course, knew that. And uh, that's why I think his, his books are extremely important. And when I was researching my own set of novels, the Islam Quintet. And I, yeah. in the first one, Shadows of the Pomegranate Tree, set in Spain during the last years of Islamic civilization, there I did a lot of research and um, went and studied a lot of stuff. This is a period of roughly six to seven hundred years in which Jews and Muslims worked together. It's not that they weren't, there wasn't some trouble, but the enemy of the Jews and Muslims was the Catholic Church, which finally won with the reconquest and chucked them out. The Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492 and the Muslims in 1526. It was not easy to expel the Muslims immediately. So these expulsions which created modern Europe also helped to fuel the ignorance about Islam in the Western world, that it wasn't just an ideological thing, it was linked to the reconquest, it was linked to the crusades that were fought to win back Jerusalem and win back the once Christian areas and hand them over to Christianity. And one of the things that shocked was that after the First World War, when the Christian states, France and Britain, not that they were officially such, Britain was, but not France, uh, but they yeah. were from that cultural uh, side. Mm -hmm. When the French general marched into Damascus, he went to the tomb of Saladin, who was the great unifying king, and who in the Second Crusade had said that one of the first things we must make sure is to say that Jerusalem remains an open city and provided state subsidies to rebuild the mosques and synagogues that had been destroyed by the Crusaders. And this friend general went to his tomb and said, you know, centuries later, we're talking about the 12th century when Saladin did that. And in the 20th mm -hmm. century, he goes back and screams outside the tomb of Saladin saying, Saladin, we are back. The cross overrules the crest. You know, the Arabs sort of into intelligentsia was just shocked. They said, what? Yeah. This is what they've come to do. So um, having Rodinson's books was just one weapon against the crude views held in, in relation to Islam. And of course, in France, which you asked about, you have a situation where there is a huge population, I'm, I shouldn't use words like huge, because it's tiny compared to the rest, of Muslim mm. migrants 
from Tunisia, from uh, Algeria, from mm. Morocco, who are there not because of Islam, but because the French colonized that world and yeah. destroyed quite a lot of it. And when they left, people had nothing, had no job. Some who collaborated with the French were naturally not well treated. And they came to France and they were welcomed at the time. Come, yes, yes, you're part of the great French Commonwealth. And, uh, and now they are regarded as complete enemies. And, uh, you know, if you look, as I did in my various researches, at the language used in France, in Britain, no doubt soon in Germany as well, against Muslims is virtually the same words that were used against the Jews prior to the Second mm -hmm. World War. Even the way the media reports it, Oh, they're funny people, they're weird, they're not like us, they have their day of their Sabbath on, on, on a separate uh, day, they wear funny things on their head, they're just not part of our culture, i.e. they're the other, the outsider. Uh, and so there's no problem really in discriminating against them. This business of there being a Christian Jewish civilization is just rubbish. You know, when did it start, we ask? You know, Jews have always been victimized in Christian states long before. That's why he's read. His, his writings are translated all over the world, Rodinson. Talking about that, there's sort of a, a mirror side to this, where the book was banned by the Egyptian minister for higher education in the late 90s. And so there's this other side that instead of opposing it because it enlightens the world of uh, Islamic thought and the history, it sees it as denigrating the Islamic faith. And what what do you think it says to the critics that think that? What what can one say that one can say that they're sort of foolish and mm. stupid for not allowing their citizens to uh, read a book? which would actually lift everyone. Argue against it, by all means. Find yeah, your yeah, own yeah. scholars to denounce uh, Rodinson and write a reply to him, saying this is what you've got wrong. He's this very open about that. They do not do that because they can't. Because the way they... This was not always the case, by the way. I mean, a whole number of Arab intellectuals liked the book, engaged with it. Some were critical, some liked it. It was read quite a lot in the Arab world. The translation into Arabic was very good. This is part of the new current in the world that developed basically after the Iranian upheavals in the late 70s and the Iranian mm -hmm. revolution which was led by mullahs, monks, uh, and the a mood of a, a religiosity spread through the conser in conservative sectors throughout the Arab world. And they became very scared that the same thing might happen in their countries unless they got their acts together. So they encouraged this sort of nonsense, you know, banning books yeah. instead of replying to them. That, that's what it is. And where has it got them? I mean, you know, it's just crazy. Yeah. Um, it, the same things happen to authors. I mean, Rushdie, for instance. But uh, yeah. 
You know, sure. it's foolish. It really is foolish. I wrote a play against this once many years ago, and I had a line in it. I said, how can a you know great religion, ancient religion, be threatened by a poem or a book? And we found uh, dissenting yeah. stuff in the history of Islam. You know, the, the mm-hmm. Egyptian, 12th century mm-hmm. Egyptian poet, ah, Egyptian, Syrian poet, Al-Mari, who um, lived in Aleppo, a blind poet, very brilliant and very, very radical. And he wrote a, an anti-Quran in, mm-hmm. in verse. And nobody, no one touched him. He carried on reciting it. Some people would come and tease him and say, Al-Mari, you've written your own version of the Quran, but hey, man, no one's reading your Quran. People are not in it. <laughs> and he, he would say, wait, how long have people been reciting the other Quran? Give me another thousand years. Or, you know, give me another eight. Mine will become yeah, as yeah. This tradition was, you know, not necessarily encouraged, but it wasn't crushed either. And so yeah, it's the yeah. sad thing mm-hmm. is the ghetto in which Islam or many Islamic intellectuals, not all by any means, confined themselves. They became extremely defensive. If this is what the West is saying, then it has to be wrong. And that has never been my opinion, you know, or the opinion of many Muslim Arab intellectuals in that world, that you learn from wherever you can. And where else were we going to find these narratives uh, like those of Rodanson? Where? Right. And he seemed to be very upfront about kind of the quagmire he was walking into trying to write a secular biography of Muhammad. And he seemed to welcome potential disagreement. But his work showcases so many different sides to Muhammad, from you know the orphan to the merchant, the prophet, the politician, and more. I was wondering which aspects of his personality do you think that he rendered the best, and did you see did you see him differently after reading this book? Well, I saw him for the first time. If you yeah. ask after reading this book. Well, prior to that, especially if you were growing up in the Muslim world, you didn't discuss these things. You just took the religious history for granted, or not, as mm-hmm. in my case. But, and in the case of many other people, this was a, you know, you lived here. It's like people living in a Christian country in the West. How often do they think about the virgin birth or Jesus? Not very much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the same like that. If you're growing up in an Islamic country, you'd rarely think of the religion. How can that be an identity when 95% of the people in your country are Muslims? So choosing an Islamic identity, it's not done that often. And the religious parties who form themselves on the basis of religion are usually uh, conservative uh, parties, uh, etc. I remember, I mean, to entertain you, I, I, I was having a debate in Pakistan soon after one of my books had come out. And mm-hmm. they said, would you mind debating on television against the Secretary General of the Party of Islam? Now, they're quite intelligent people. You know, I don't mind yeah. debating them. So I said, yeah, I will debate. 
So we went on a, a large new channel which had been set up and precisely for having debates, though not on religion so much. And the uh, the guy started speaking. And I said, look, guys, why to him, I said, why do you pretend that you're all anti-imperialists when throughout the Cold War you were backing the United States in everything yep. uh, they did? When uh, the Saudis sent you, you know, dollops of cash to put in your bank accounts and build your parties, and you went and became missionaries for them, and still are. So when you people talk about being staunch anti-imperialists, I just don't believe it. And he said, he was very conciliatory, and he said, oh, Brother Tarak, do you know that we are on the same side on Iraq? I said, yeah, we are like most of the world. I said, half of America, most of the world against the war yeah. in Iraq. It's got not much to do with whether you're a Jew, Muslim, or Christian. So he said, no, but you're so hostile to us. And then I said, okay, let's you know cut through all this. What is your obsession with women? and the rules and rituals imposed on them. What is it? Just tell me. And they said, he did surprise me, I have to admit. He said, uh, well, you know, in the 60s and 70s, all you people used to go on about sexism and the uh, discrimination against women and women used as commodities. I said, yeah, I still believe that. And they said, well, we do too. So I said, but, you know, you go and tear down posters with film actresses on and burn them. And they said, yeah, we don't want them to be used as objects. So I said, well, this is the first I've heard of that. But then in order to make sure that this uh, is applied across the board, there's some lots of posters of very handsome, good-looking young men, male actors, athletes. Why not tear those down as well? Because, of course, as you know, he was talking from a particular part of the country, the part of the country where you are. Bisexuality is very common. At this point, the interviewer got nervous and said, I think we've had enough of this discussion and let's move on to. But the thing is, you can debate them. And that is why I really do not like cancel culture, where debates yeah. are on both sides. You know, now we see how it's being used. In, in the Western world, in the United States, where events being cancelled, which even mentioned Palestine, and very mild things being done like that. I mean, cancel culture on a huge scale, which all these people who are now in favor of it used to attack the left uh, and people on progressive people for imposing this culture on the questions of you know, gender and race and other things. And my attitude always has been uh, and expressed as such that by and large, unless it's something really obscene and unpleasant if people want to debate you debate them don't go on the defensive if a book upsets you don't read it yeah you know don't say it shouldn't be read by anyone why who are we to impose that or similarly a movie or a stage play and much much better to argue much better for the progressives to actually argue against these things rather than asking to be banned because you can never win like that 
You know, mm-hmm. I've debated people from the Israeli uh, Likud uh, party, the ruling party in Israel, a member of parliament. I debated him in London, packed with Palestinians and Jews and Zionists. Very useful debate. Uh, after mm-hmm. the end of it, this is about 20 mm-hmm. years ago almost, or maybe a bit less, uh, he said to me, uh, thank you very much for agreeing to debate with me. I said, why shouldn't I? And he said, normally people don't come near us. I said, that's why you've grown so stupid. (laughs) People don't come near you and you carry on thinking and having these absurd beliefs. Yeah. Then got a bit angry with me and he said, one thing you don't consider. I said, this was after the debate. Mm -hmm. He said, we could kill a lot more Palestinians than we do, you know. It's our restraint. So then I just... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's about 10, 15, yeah. 15 years ago. So I said, I, you know, I said, oh, really? Oh, thank you so much for not killing so many. Oh, so nice. And when we, you talk, bring up this idea about not just Muhammad's representation in the book, but like the women's representation and them not wanting to be seen as objects in that culture. I thought it was interesting that the book not just centers on Muhammad, but it draws a lot of attention to his wives, as well as other family members like his father-in-law. I loved the characterization of uh, Khadija and Aisha. And what do you think we can learn about Muhammad from learning about his family members in this way? making them truly a part of his orbit in this story. Yeah, well, I think what he reflects is the culture of the period, that women weren't just to shut up, you know, if they said something men didn't agree with. They were used to their mothers and sisters and wives and mistresses fighting back and arguing against them. It wasn't a big deal, particularly in the pre-Islamic pagan period, but even in the uh, early Islamic period, and this carried on uh, till the height of Islamic civilization, the medieval period. Uh, I mean, there are examples uh, in Cordoba, Islamic uh, Cordoba, during the Arab rule in that peninsula, that uh, a woman poet, Valada, had a salon, I mean, she was from a very wealthy, noble family, but she kept Mm -hmm. a salon whose only function was to discuss sexual gossip. I mean, everyone does that. But she institutionalized it, so people came and told stories. And she herself uh, fell out with her lover, a very famous poet, still taught in Arab schools. She fell out with him uh, because he'd gone bisexual and had a boyfriend. And she wrote an absolutely vicious, jealous poem attacking him and, you know, making rude remarks about his lovers behind and uh, uh, saying, who do you think I am? I am Valada, I am a woman. You know, stuff like that which would really shock even educated uh, uh, Muslim students in Western campuses Mm -hmm. today were they to know the uh, extent of it. I mean, I'll give you another example more modern about, when was it? I can't remember now, about 20 years, no, less than that. 15 years ago, one of my novels was launched at, in the in Turkish at the Istanbul Book Fair, and my publisher came up mm. to me, and he said, normally we know you can deal with these things, but today 
a bunch of Islamists close to the government are coming to attack you. I said, for what? Oh my gosh. I said, because the book is too good. They said, no, Tarek, uh, I won't. Maybe they won't. I said, you can. Uh, fine, I'll deal with it. And I knew <laughs> I had a rough idea what it was going to be. So the, it was a, a huge meeting. And at the end of it, and large numbers of women and Kurdish people, because the book was the book of Saladi, very popular uh-huh. leader, who united the Arabs for the first time, one amongst a few times, and chucked the Crusaders out. But there was a lot of sex in that book, because it was just normal, you know. And I had a story in it, a sort of sub-story of two of Saladin's, his favorite wife, who was also an intellectual soulmate. And a very mm-hmm. beautiful young Kurdish girl who was part of his harem, Haram, falling in love with each other. And, you know, nothing odd in that today, or in those days, except they didn't talk about it. So this story got quite a lot of traction. You know, Canadian feminists used to refer to it as my lesbian novel, but it wasn't. It was just <laughs> including something which is part of everyday life. But this is what irritated them. So the talk was well received. At the end, two or three of them raised their hands. So I said, yeah, I'll answer all your questions. What is it? And they said, you know, we liked your novel as such, but you spoiled it by having the two of uh, Sultan Saladin's uh, wives having a love affair with each other. So the, uh, I said, well, I wouldn't say spoiled it. I would say enhanced it just to convey a complete picture of that world. And they said, but have you got evidence? So I said, we didn't have, you know, cameras in those days. So people didn't write about these things. So there's no evidence as such, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence in Arab literature. And he said, but how do you know? I said, I don't have to know. It's fiction. So I can tell you I invented it all, but I don't want to say that because it it happened, it existed. So he was very polite. Yeah. There was no, you know, threats or anything. So he said, I just can't understand. By this time, quite a lot of women in the audience were giggling and saying, get on with your questions. <laughs> what do you want to ask? And I then, I said, okay, let me ask you a question. So he said, yes. So I said, let's suppose you are Saladin. You're the emperor. You're the the sultan of the Ottoman Empire. And you have about 30 or 40 wives and concubines locked up. I said, no, not locked up, but living in your haram. He said, yeah. I said, you're quite a good-looking guy. I'll give you that. But how many of these women and their needs do you think you could satisfy every week? Bin drop silence. I said, oh, so what should women do? I said, you know, they find solace in each other and they enjoy to themselves. So what's the big deal? Why are you getting upset? You've still got a large selection to choose from. The whole place around it. Laughing. And so you can puncture all this nonsense 
if uh, if you want to and not just accept it. You know, that's when they tend to get violent because they can't reply to you. But I, you know, I suggest go and check out your sources. So one has to do that. I've always been, you have to fight back, you know, against all the things. Never keep silent. Yeah, keep engaging. I want to draw just brief attention to the cover art of the book, which is a tomb cover made for Prophet Muhammad's tomb in Medina in the 16th century. And I thought it was an interesting choice to pick an image for the cover that focused on his death when it was a book about his life. But Rodinson concludes the work with this this different mode of writing where he in this chapter called Triumph Over Death, where he gives a summation of the prophet's legacy. And I was wondering what you kind of thought of that final note and his decision to switch pretty dramatically from when he actually dies, because we're very intimate. I felt like we're in the tent with him when he's going and when everyone's realizing that this was really the end, because it was quite unexpected, to this other mode. Well, I liked it, you know, um, but there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever. All these things are derived from the hadith of that period. So, And he usually mm-hmm. says that as he goes along. Of course, there is no firm evidence for this or that. This is part mm-hmm. of the, um, the Islamic tradition. But one thing, in talking about uh, covers and Islamic art, if you think about it, in the 7th century and 8th century, Images and icons were part and parcel of a religion, which carried on, you know, right through the Renaissance with these amazing portrayals of the Virgin Mary uh, breastfeeding and all that sort of stuff, pretty amazing stuff. Muhammad and his colleagues said that this is a continuation of idolatry and Islam must never, ever portray the images of me or anyone else. It has to be a religion with no icons. Yeah. And so this forced the new Muslim artists and their successors to think in abstract terms, Mm -hmm. which, if you think about it, is very modern and, you know... Yes. Uh, But its origins of abstract art, in that sense, go right back to the Islamic 7th century and the centuries that followed. And so all these beautiful tiles and were artists getting used to, and then they competed with each other. Who could make a better tile? Who could have, like the artists do today on different levels? So that gave Islamic art its particular richness. Of course, not all of Islam followed this. The Shia uh, faction of Islam uh, had its own rules, and they said, ah, the Prophet didn't mean it in this way because they couldn't resist having uh, permitting their artists. They did a lot of abstract stuff, of course, yeah. in Iran. But they also had depictions of the prophet, the sort of more telegenic stories from the old days, you know, Muhammad going on his famed horse for his famous summit meeting with God Mm -hmm. 
and the horse flying. It's a bit irresistible to try and paint that because you know yeah. you can imagine them saying, "How the hell are we going to do this in abstract?" <laughs> and so there is a, a book of paintings. I have a feeling it's from the 17th century. I can't remember uh -huh. now. Where these stories of the mirage, the 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 the, the visit, the summit, the meeting in heaven. Uh, and what he sees in the other heavens before he reaches the seventh heaven, which is part of the Islamic tradition. Beautiful, absolutely incredible uh, drawings, though you they don't depict the prophet's face. So the face yeah. is a blank where they need to show it, otherwise it's his back, his hands, him on the horse. So the, even they are careful, but they do it. And uh, that was never, I mean, no one ever did anything to this guy. He just carried on. A very, very brilliant painter. Lived in Herat in Afghanistan, Iranian part of, you know, Shia part of Afghanistan. So it's, it is part of the Shia tradition, and they have their own imams who they, they depict. As we wrap up this discussion, you mentioned earlier that less than a decade after this book was published, Rodinson became well-known in France for expressing reservations about Israel, despite being Jewish. And this was fairly radical at the time. Yeah. It felt, I mean, we'd planned this, doing this book for a while, but it felt intense, I would say, to revisit this book now in December 2023. What did it mean for you to talk about it and go back to it at this point of time in history? Well, it made it very real and alive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm that this guy writing this book and his other books absolutely desperate to get the Israelis to see sense and yeah. not do this a long time ago. I mean, he'd have been horrified, absolutely horrified by the scenes we've all been watching on television yeah. and Western politicians sitting back and watching it and saying, we can't even call for a ceasefire, leave alone a decent settlement, a decent permanent settlement, he would have been completely horrified. But I feel he would also have seen it in a, a, more gr in, in, in a much more grimmer fashion. He would, have, he would have seen it as why are the Jewish people of Israel determined to commit suicide? That yeah. there is a feeling. Do they think they can get away with this forever? Till the end of the century? 10 years, 20 years, 5 years? I mean, how many people can they kill? And the Arab population is quite large. And sooner or later, this will provoke a huge clash if nothing changes. And then nuclear weapons will be used. I mean, are we going to then have a nuclear war? Uh, or is Israel going to be put into NATO to become a totally kosher part of the West? I mean, the Americans mm -hmm. have to think about this. And quite honestly, someone asked me the other day at a meeting, they said, how is this going to be solved? I said, the answer, I'm afraid, lies with the United States. Because in 19... 57, when Gaza was occupied for four months by the Israelis, was it 57? Yeah, I think so. President Eisenhower sent a warning to Israel saying, I want you out of Gaza. 
And yeah. when they tried, when they prevaricated, he said, unless you get out, we will sanction you. We will place sanctions on Israel. And they left. Mm-hmm. Now, so the, what that shows is that it can be done if the will is there. And without the support of the United States, there is no way in which the Israelis could be behaving like this because they are so completely sure that whether Republican or Democrat, they are going to be back till kingdom come. And so they, you know, they, they, they talk like this. I mean, you can see that there is nervousness and unease within the United States uh, political military elite. I mean, Biden is an unfortunate president to have. And I mean, even Bush, the first, uh, George Bush, the first president from the Bush family, was much, much sharper. And his secretary of state warned Israel in private that you're pushing it by thinking that we're going to ignore this uh, forever. And they were punished. I mean, it's Bush's friends tell people that the decision to find a third candidate with a lot of money was the response, which lost him the election. But, you know, he did it. And that was not so long ago. So it basically, I mean, I was really shocked when Bernie Sanders, who had excited all of us, came out on the same line. You know, you say then who yeah. is left in yeah. that country to to argue for you know a rational case? So that's my answer. Mm-hmm. And reading Rodin Saint, as I've been doing for the last few days for you for this talk with you guys, I just felt God. Uh, a nothing changes. You know, just mm-hmm. look at it. Three wars, numerous occupations. That. It's awful, really. It is bad, mm-hmm. and we just carry on. And mercifully, there are people writing out there. And what this business has now done, the continuing bombing, is that the whole world is mobilized. So gov- leave the governments alone. But the demonstrations, one of the most moving things I find has been the demonstrations yeah. by young people identifying themselves as Jews and stressing their solidarity with Palestine, the occupation of the Grand Central Mm -hmm. Station, which the whole world saw, because you now see everything, it's incredibly moving. And that should worry both APAC and the Israeli uh, governments and parties and the United States government, that if young people of Jewish origin are getting tired and fed up and disgusted with this, how long can you carry it on? This is a completely different generation now. And the same thing happened in Britain. You had lots of Jewish yeah. people marching onto their mm-hmm. banners and the big pro-Palestine uh, demonstrations. I mean, we had a terrible home secretary, a woman called Suella Braverman, uh, really semi-fascist in her attitudes, wanting yeah. the marches banned and describing them as hate marches. And no, there was n- nothing like that. And we got very fed up. And I was interviewed on the some radio show before the last big march. And they said the Home Secretary is just called again, described the marcher, peace marchers as hate marchers. And I just couldn't resist it. 
I said, yeah, they are hate marches. We all hate her. And, <laughs> and within a week, she'd been fired and oh. lost her job. So we, of yeah. course, claimed it as one of our tiny victories. But anyway... How this is going to affect Israel, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, what surprises me? It doesn't really surprise I used to often ask the New York Times people and the Guardian people, I said, there is a newspaper in Israel called Haaretz. This paper has three or four very fine journalists who are Amira Haas, is in Ramallah, in the occupied territories, Gideon Levy travels everywhere. Can't you at the very least mm -hmm. publish their column in the New York Times and the Guardian? These are Israeli citizens. Have been One of them has been part of the establishment. They know their stuff. Don't publish any non-Jews if you don't want to, okay? If you're scared. Publish them saying, no, no, that would be too provocative. So the populations in Western Europe and North America are not allowed to read stuff being written by Israeli journalists, which is far tougher than anything being written by themselves. That's the world we live in. You know, it really is a world of double standards. Yeah. And this book felt like you mentioned in your LRB pieces as sort of an antidote. I think we're hopefully finding some Rod and Sons today mm. of today that would be a, some sense of an antidote to what's going on. And it, it, like knowing Radisson was a mm. sort of this Jewish voice against Israel in his time, which was a, more radical. It's maybe not the biggest population, but it's, it's good to know that, that he's becoming less of a lone island in that sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, there were, there are fewer now, but there were other people like him in Israel who spoke up, Yeah, uh, many of them former Zionists who sort of just couldn't bear it any longer and had broken and had become independent socialists or whatever, writing strong stuff. Yeah. But now they are not even allowed to demonstrate. The Israeli Supreme Court has said they're not allowed to demonstrate against what Israel is yeah. doing. So... It's it's a, it's a nightmarish situation, mm -hmm. and Rodansan is needed. Everyone should read it. Really, just learn about that region. Mm -hmm. Nothing else. Even if you don't care a damn about yes. the prophet or anything else about Islam, just read his books yeah. to get some idea of what that world is like. It's it's an unfortunate time, but if there's any mm -hmm. better time to pick up this book, this could be it. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to mention that we didn't get to about Rodinson or about the book? Well, the irony is that at a time when Rodinson was writing these books, France was a much better place. I mean, Rodinson was writing his books, but the Le Monde correspondent in the Arab world was a guy called Eric Rouleau, I think also of Jewish origin. And his reports we would read in Britain because there was nothing quite like that coming uh, from other newspapers. The Germans, of course, were just paralyzed by the crimes of the Second World War. And even them, the more intelligent ones, I used to say, look, 
Everyone knows that. But if you carry on blaming yourselves non-stop, people will somehow imagine that this is genetic, that every German is, uh, you know, genocide German. And so why carry yeah. this on? Give the Israelis as much money as you want. Who cares about that? But do not tarnish yourselves nonstop because you'll be paralyzed. And that's exactly what's happened. I mean, you know, you, you see a situation where a German, young German stands in the middle of Berlin and says, cease fire now, my family perished during the Holocaust. And 10 cops charge, pick him up, throw him in a van and take him to prison. And many examples like this. So they don't even know what they're doing. I mean, just think about it. What have you done? And in, you know, a young, decent kid is trying mm -hmm. to stop a war and you're locking him up because you've been given orders that any demonstrations against this war are illegal unless approved by the government. This is Germany. And that makes one think that perhaps the way they've been teaching the Judeocide or the Holocaust, there's something wrong there by making it into an exceptional act of genocide. Where, you know, and not saying that it's just if it, 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 it's difference yeah. with the other genocides that it was industrialized. But then, if it was industrialized genocide, which it was, why the hell don't you do yeah. something to the firms that were producing Zyklon B gas? Yeah. They were all revived after the Second World War. You know, 40, 50% of the Germans who knew about these measures on top levels of the government were kept in power. So what sort of... Uh, uh, homage is it for the uh, those who were killed to, for, to 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 have all this, and be much better for the Germans to take a principled position on this, saying this is unacceptable. We know we did it ourselves, and we are paying the price. And the the Hebrew poet mm -hmm. Haran Shapta has a very fine poem about this. He says, "And all those of you, when you finally face the judges." who charge you with crimes and for, uh, and for chanting death to the Arabs, death to the Arabs, at that point, please don't say we didn't know. Mm. Everyone knows now. But from the difference is he could write these books, they could be reviewed, praised, discussed, criticized, everything. No one thought it was odd. Today, I mean, you know, French publishers are turning down books that are critical. It's just it's last week, mm. Fayad turned down some book or the other, which sounded incredibly mild yeah. and moderate. So you don't like what's happening, and because you can't stop it, you don't want anyone else to talk about it because it's embarrassing for you who support it. Yeah. It's a very fearful climate, and there's no tidy ending or inspirational ending when we're talking about this subject, but we're very thankful to speak with you and to have you on to benefit from your knowledge and insight into these issues. So thanks again. Thanks very much. Very nice talking to both. I did want to mention that as we were preparing the rundown for this episode last night, a pro-Palestinian march 
did pass directly by our apartment building. Mm -hmm. So loud that we could hear it vibrating through the windows. It brought a strong reality back to what Robinson is trying to do with this work. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstra. Our next book is Melville by Jean Giono. We will be recording that episode live in New Bedford, Massachusetts as part of the Moby Dick Marathon. If you're in the area, consider coming by, checking it out. Yes, please. There's a lot of exciting things going on that weekend. Yeah, it's an event we've been really big fans of for a couple of years virtually, but it's going to be really cool to be there in person, not just in person, but to, to host an event. And we'll be on Sunday morning at 10. So if you're there, check us out. Bring your coffee. Bring your coffee. And it'll just be a good place to share the love of literature. Some of the best literature ever written. And we're also going to have some special Moby Dick related content on our Patreon. Yes. Can't wait to share that. Which you should check out. Link will be in the show notes. Our latest exclusive episode was a conversation with Dan Sinekin and his book, Big Fiction, which is about conglomeration and the publishing industry and the effect that that's had on the literary landscape in America. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Unburied Books, or you can send us an email at unburiedbooks at gmail.com. Bye. I think that's it, right? Yeah. Bye. Bye.